Okay, so my experience getting curry at a proper British curry house, and by this I mean in London. So it was years ago now when Alex Perry and I went and like did like we went in a couple different spots but um the last place that we ended was London and so Alex and I had just taken Perry to the airport because she was heading home a little bit sooner than us and we'd left quite early in the morning and then by the time we got back from like doing all that and then we'd had a day and whatever it's like pouring rain like (laughs) raining harder than I've ever experienced no this is like we're from Vancouver we know what rain is like it was rainier than I've ever experienced in my life I've never been so soaked through by rain what time of year was this? This was summer. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, English summers are questionable. Exactly. But, like, not that questionable. Like, it was a freak <laughs> storm. Like, it was so fucked up. And I'm wearing, like, a white t-shirt and, like, black pants. And she's wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Like, we are not equipped for this weather. We're, like, sloshing through the fucking streets. They're just overflowing with rain because the drains are not equipped for this level of water. Anyways. <laughs> So we finally are like, okay, we got to eat something. We got to get it dry somewhere. So we go into, we see oh, like curry and we're like, great, we'll have curry for dinner. Perfect. Perfect. So we go in there. There is one man who is just like, what I assume a traditional butcher looks like, just like large with like a very stained apron and like oh, kind of scary. The stains are very concerning. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, it's, you know, there's a bunch of different curries in here. I'm sure that's just curry. But then there's another part of my brain that's like, he could have easily murdered someone out back because as we had to go to the bathroom to attempt to clean ourselves off, there is like, you have to go outside around the back. There's like a full, like, anytime you have to leave an establishment to go to the bathroom and there's like full wilderness slash like junkyard in the midst, it's a very, it's a very specific experience, right? So we're there. We go to the bathroom. There's no paper towel, which is great because I could not be any wetter and I have no way to dry myself. In this curry shop, there is three, I want to say Irish, but it's like, I just don't understand the accents enough, but like very like thick, very like wild accents. And they're it's like, and they're like missing teeth. Like this is full crazy, like redneck kind of British men that are sitting there and they're like, having a nice day, ladies. And it's like, yeah, we're having a great time. Like, which we were like having a lovely, having a lovely go of it. But uh, yeah, it was strange. And anyways, we had curry and it was delightful. Oh, but it, the food was good in the end? It was so good. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, great. We had a great time. Um, basically, the long and short of it is British curry houses. Confusing atmosphere. Good food? Question mark? Who's to say? <laughs> so anyways, that's my tale. That's a great tale. I feel like, yeah, the curry in England was definitely a saving grace when my vegetarian family went there. And it's like, oh, yeah. We can eat so many things because there's a lot of vegetarians here because of the, like, yeah, Hindu and Muslim, like Indian immigration. It's great. God bless any country where there's options. I, well, Perry and I were talking about this when her brother went traveling with a vegan. And, like, in a country, especially one where you don't speak the language necessarily, like, how difficult is that to navigate mm-hmm. a menu and how stressful? And you talking about your time going to Asia and you're like, oh, God, like, I, you can't trust nothing. Although, like, when I was in Asia, it was pretty easy because, again, they have a lot of Buddhists, so mm, it was true, pretty true. easy. I think and I learned those words beforehand. Oh, well, that's good. All I can think back is to you telling me about going to the airport and ordering just, like, rice with broth, and there was, like, a full bone in it, and you're like, <laughs> That was Shanghai. That's a different story. Yeah, fair. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like the worst for... What was the worst for food for 
like like Nova Scotia. <laughs> <laughs> Eastern Canada was so hard. <laughs> I ate a lot of Caesar salad. Oh my god, a lot of Caesar salad. What a very specific dish to have to consume. Love a Caesar salad, but... Yeah. I mean, I think it was all that I ever wanted on the menus that I was like, was an option. I don't know. It was yeah. partially my own choices. Fair enough. <laughs> Lord. Well, now, I would just like you to know... Oh, should we do our intro here? Oh, yeah. I guess... By the way, everyone, this is... Pantry Staples, the podcast. Where we dish about your favorite foods. I'm Marika. And I'm Emily. Um, and today we're talking about curry, which is why we've told you this long-winded anecdote. Um, <laughs> as opposed to other anecdotes that have been less thematic. Anywho. <laughs> or perhaps even more long-winded. Yes, indeed. You're all just very lucky that Marika edits out most of what I say. <laughs> <laughs> it's a daunting task. Yeah, what can you do? So, let's talk curry, shall we? Yes, please. First of all, I would like to just start by discussing, I know we briefly talked about this like the other day, but I just want to make it clear to everyone listening that I have anxieties about discussing this because there is such a huge cultural component to this, like this topic, and uh, I feel like it has a lot more emotional weight to it than just dealing with ingredients and a lot more emotional weight than just like a pie. Uh, so <laughs> feeling like I don't want to piss anyone off by getting this stuff wrong and I'm just like not 100% sure about everything. But I did my very best in the research and uh, I hope I'm not ascribing too much cultural weight to a dish because I do not want to be exoticizing a country and only looking at their food culture and thinking of their entire culture. So basically, I'm very white. I'm very sorry about it, I think is what we're getting at here. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, I think it's funny because I, I read, I mean, I read one book about where there was one, uh, the author is Mauritian and he, he was basically uh, like off the coast of India. And okay. I didn't Google it because again, geography, I hates it. Um, yes. But yeah. And he was just like, this is all fake, which I'm going to get into later. I have so many quotes because I just loved his writing. And I'll, but yes. Well, that's fantastic. Um, Curry, I guess rough. that's great, basically, because I feel like then you're going to check everything that I say at the end. So that's fantastic. Everyone can just write, hear what I think. And I think it's right. And I've done my very best to research this. So anyways, sorry if I'm wrong. Bye. Let's talk about the word curry first, where the name mm -hmm. comes from, all that sort of stuff. So curry most likely comes from the anglicized form of the Tamil word curry. So Tamil is a language spoken in India and Sri Lanka. So we can kind of trace curry to these locations just through the word itself. Uh, it's also, Tamil is also one of the Dravidian languages and curry is also found in other of these languages such as Malayalam, Kannada, and Kodava. Sorry, how do we spell curry? Uh, K-A-R-I. Okay. The interesting thing too is when I was trying to do some research on the etymology of the word and kind of trying, I was trying to figure out like when this word came into popular consciousness kind of to see if it was something that was present before English colonialism and uh, that is indeterminate but I think no. Uh, mm. But anyways, this word, well I think it is but uh, anyways I'll get get to that uh, but it's also just based on like the punctuation and everything it can have like four other meanings too so if I've said it incorrectly which is very likely or even if I haven't said it incorrectly but the context isn't there it might mean something different interesting yeah that's really yeah 
So anyways, in Tamil, curry means sauce or relish for rice. In Malayalam, Kannada, and Kodava, uh, no, Kodava, yeah. Curry means vegetables or meat raw or boiled in curry. So the leaves of the curry tree in Tamil are known as Karuvapilai, uh, which means black leaf, translated loosely. Uh, so we see the term curry in English language before the invasion of India occurred. It's so like before the British went over and actually experienced like what we now know as curry, they were using this term and it was used to reference a stew. Uh, mm -hmm. So we're, there's also this thought that the British simply used this term to describe the similar enough dish that they found in India. So we have a few theories in general around the terminology curry slash curry. Uh, so one that it comes from the Tamil word for black pepper, one that it comes from the Tamil word for spiced sauce, one that it comes from the English term for stew. We also have another theory that it comes from the pre-Aryan, so like 1750 to 1200 BCE Tamil term for black pepper fried meat, which is interesting. Oh, yeah, very specific. Yeah. So again, I think some of the takeaways we can have from this is like one black pepper is definitely something that's in like a curry. So there's mm -hmm. that, um, the spice sauce, like there's, there's a lot of, it's very descriptive to it, but it's also very kind of vague in terms of we don't really know where this word comes from and we don't know when it comes. Well, maybe we do, but I certainly couldn't figure out like a definitive <laughs> date for when it comes into use. So that's kind of making the distinction between a pre and post colonial dish very difficult, I think. Especially but when we don't speak the language. Exactly. Of the pre colonial. Yeah. It was very difficult too. I felt like if I had been able to do this research in Tamil, I would have had a much easier time. But alas, I speak not the language. Um, so after that, let's just, what are we actually talking about when we're talking about yeah. curry? So basically, it's a dish with or without meat, vegetables, rice, bread, and lots of spices. It can be spicy or mild, and it can be saucy or dry. What I think is a good definition that we can all feel comfortable with, is this a dish that the British killed people over? Yeah. Is this just any traditional dish from the Indian subcontinent? Who's to say? If it is, probably a curry. Um, another thing to note is That's that not... Comforting. Yeah, Such exactly. definition. Just like, was there murder behind your delicious chicken tikka masala? Enjoy. <laughs> Um, another thing to note is that not all curries have curry leaves in them. So usually they include ground turmeric, cumin, coriander, ginger, fresh or diced chilies, which is so interesting because chilies are from the, the new world, the Americas. Oh, I, I have a... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good, good. Uh, so there's that. We have archaeological evidence of spices being ground with a mortar and pestle from as early as 2600 BCE, including mustard, fennel, cumin, and tamarind pods, black pepper from as early as 2000 BCE, we have um, the Indus population at this time that used mainly ginger, garlic, and turmeric in their cooking. And this formed a kind of proto-curry, which is just kind of, again, like I said, for the definition, any dish that kind of came out of that, like, sub-Indian, sub-sub, oh my god, subcontinental Indian. I can't talk. You know what I'm saying? I came across subcontinent as, like, a term. Is that problematic? Should we not be saying subcontinent? Or am I just over like geared to think that anything with like the word sub or that sounds 
kind of so like old timey bad. That's an interesting question because I don't really think I could come across in my looking my research another term that encapsulates that area specifically. And I think mm-hmm. when I think of the term sub in there, I don't necessarily think of it as like a, a lesser or more. I think of more like lower on the map, like geographically. So I think yeah. it's fine, but I'm I'm not sure if anyone has any feedback, please let us know. It was a weird thing where it's, I think maybe it's because I encountered it first in like one of the like early, like a reading that I was doing that was like from like the eighties or nineties. And I was like, do we know, like, mm. is this terminology still good? I don't know. And then my, so then my actual question is, could you kind of contextualize 2000 BCE for me? Cause I have no concept of dates. Like what was going on like um, in Greece? Like, I don't know. Greece? Is yeah, it Greece? Because, because that's all that we really know about in our very mm-hmm. westernized understanding of history. Um, so early Bronze Age is uh, 2000 to 1500. So it's just before the Bronze Age. I think the gist, just from my understanding of like Greek history, because again, that's what we've been taught and that's how we've yeah. been trained to like contextualize time, mm-hmm. uh, is that at that time we have civilizations that are definitely formed. We have, you know, Cities are definitely a thing. We have tools that are being used. We have writing that is being done. Not necessarily mm-hmm. anything that we can actually like. I especially with this was an interesting thing that I read that um a lot of the Indian languages we have not yet been able to translate like the yeah archaic uh, languages as opposed to like uh, hieroglyphics from Egypt which we definitely can. Uh, so there's just not been that kind of breakthrough yet. So I would say 2600 BCE. There's definitely a lot going on. Like, it's not the dark ages where people are in caves by any means. There's, like, no. really, yeah. like, artistic endeavors being taken. There's, like, real, like, sophisticated systems in place within cities. So there's there's stuff, but it's definitely before, like, our understanding of, like, the written history of, like, Greece and that sort of thing. Like, it's just before right. that happens. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So that's, so it's super far back, and that's really cool that we're seeing... Yeah. Oh man, the archaeological stuff on this is so fucking cool. Pardon my language. I am going to work on that. I will, I promise. Um, But it's so interesting. So there's a couple of different things that they can do. One, they can take the dirt from an area and they can basically sift it through these great big sheets to see if any uh, like seeds or anything come out. But Mm -hmm. spices are too far ground down that they don't have the ability to find those. So they can one see that there's more on pestle being used like they can see the remains of that or two they can take broken shards of like shards of pottery and teeth even and do what they call starch grain analysis to find out which plants have come in contact with these teeth or pottery pieces so that's super interesting the indus population which is the one that's kind of at this time using the ginger the garlic the turmeric and they're cooking uh forming this proto curry they were quite a sophisticated society and they had um what I read was a larger like land control than like Egypt at its height. So that's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, this whole like Silk Roads book that I'm reading, it's in a later period than that, but it's just really showing me how there's so much going on in the world at all times that we just do not learn about and how it's so interesting when you do, like it blows your mind. You're like, wow, we think of Egypt as this like massive powerhouse, which it was not to deny that, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other powerhouses well and we also learn about history in such a linear fashion it's like you have the egyptians and then you have the greeks and then you have the romans whereas it's like what about everything else that's going on and what about all of the overlap which is that's the thing too and it's so interesting that we learn about like because that's a very traditional like 
learning path is like Egypt, mm-hmm. Greece, Rome, because we can trace our cultural influences through those. Yeah. But we, it's so interesting too, because those aren't the same places. Like if you looked at just Egypt and studied just Egypt in a linear fashion, it's going to be a very different understanding that we, the, the like Egypt, Greece, Rome path kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I think in general, that's kind of one thing that I want to approach when we do like say, if we were to do an episode on manners, like I think that that's why it's so cool is to like break it down into like, okay, this country and study that throughout and then this country and this country and this country. And just, it's it's hard to do, I think within, especially the scope of like the time that we have here for one episode, you can't always touch on every single thing that's happening in every single part of the world, but it is something to bear in mind that there's a lot going on. Yeah, all over the place and at such different times. So we've also found evidence of rice crops that are being abundantly grown near today's towns. Like there's two towns in this ancient period that are near today's towns of Masudpur, which is in India. Uh, So rice, which is previously thought as like not necessarily there. They thought they were just more wheat, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. We have those rice crops coming up, which is great. So Mm -hmm. curry is looking like this proto curry is looking very similar to what we would see today. Obviously not identical obviously but you know similar enough so Mm -hmm. after 1000 ce there's a large muslim population that comes into this uh indian subcontinent or whatever we would like to call it area they put their own twist on curries and mainly what they're doing is an addition of heavy meats uh which weren't necessarily super common beforehand so then we have around 1500 CE, the Portuguese establishing a trading post in Goa and introducing chilies, potatoes, and tomatoes from the Americas, which eventually become real staple ingredients in this. Mm-hmm. Like, just wild. And again, mm-hmm. that really good brings us back to the idea of like, we have to fight this concept in our heads of like an authentic dish because there is not an authentic curry. Everything is constantly changing and we just need to get our heads out of our butt. Um, I also just wanted to note that regional variation is so massive here. I could go through mm-hmm. like a mile long and I'm not going to because we don't have that kind of time. But just talking about, you know, this starch is used here. This starch is used here. We're seeing these like more meat, less meat, fish, veggies, different spices. Oh, the addition of coconut milk. Like it's just massive. The differences that we're seeing across because it is such an enormous piece of like land that we're covering here. So anyways, just note that. So now let's talk about the curry tree. Curry trees are indigenous to the Indian subcontinent and the leaves are referred to as sweet neem leaves in various Indian languages. Um, I don't think they see sweet though, because that seems wrong. (laughs) But neem, I think, is part of it. Um, It's the leaves that are used in cooking. These are what are so like valuable to these trees and also so widespread. And also Mm -hmm. what give us the name. Um, Because of the popularization of curries across especially like the british colonial like areas and like british colonies so we're talking canada britain australia we are actually seeing um commercial uh plantations in india as well as in australia of curry trees which is super interesting oh yeah interesting curry powder next what is curry powder are you going to get into this a little bit no uh, good. I'm, I don't really feel like touching it with a 10 foot pole to be quite frank, but I will just say that one <laughs> curry powder is not like cinnamon. It's not like a singular spice. It's not like something that you can find in nature. It is the British invention really that mimics the spice mixture of garam masala, which is something that it was very popular in Northern India. And it's sold commercially in England as early as 1784 as per the morning post advert, which I thought was quite fun. 
But basically, it's just like a made-up thing that everyone just throws in everything to make it taste authentic. Okay, but here's the thing. Mm. It isn't not authentic. It is traditional to pre-make a bunch of spices and kind of keep them for a bit. So you just chuck them in. Totally. So, so I'll but yes, allow it. curry powder as like, it's as, I guess the name sort of implies like a catch-all. Like, yeah, if you want to make a curry, add this plus like, I don't know, chicken. Exactly. That's, that's mostly what I have beef with. The <laughs> idea of pre-mixing spices, go on with your bad self, do it. Um, so... <laughs> Let's talk about India. Are you you are going to talk about British invasion in India? I wasn't actually. I'm just going to be talking about curry houses in India. Perfect. Okay, I'm going to briefly discuss this then. So again, I I feel like we all really know. Like, yeah, there was fucking colonialism, the empire where the sun never set. Blah 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 blah. The Raj. <laughs> Cheerio. Cheerio. <laughs> Um, anyways, so the British first invaded India in 1608, and one writer has determined that their success there was because they had more economic power, better weapons, and a certain European confidence, which allowed them to slowly permeate into the Indian subcontinent till it was ruling the huge nation. I mean, when is that not what Britain does? And when I mean, is that not what colonialism does exactly just to quote my pseudo grandpa who says ah the british they wrote the book on rape and pillage sadly he's british so it was hilarious but anyways um so why did the british get up in this business they weren't originally super concerned with territory it wasn't about that it was literally just about trade and about acquiring new products to strengthen their economy And as I would like to say, they came to India because their food was literally so shit that they couldn't handle it. They're just like, this sucks. This tastes so yucky and we need to get this, we need to get in the spice game. Because one, it acts as a preservative for their meats. And two, it acts as a preservative for their sanity. So what was the primary, like, were they there for pepper? I think it was pepper predominantly, but I think it was mostly just like they had come to this like realization like, oh yeah, you can get good stuff over there. We should go. Like, I don't like, I think that they would have said like, oh yeah, we're in for pepper, but like they were just there for whatever. Totally. And there's like, and I don't know, like the silk market and like other stuff is still going on, right? There's, There's a lot of other trade going on. And I think also like probably a huge portion of this too is like, Oh, mon Dieu, the Portuguese got there in 1603. Mm. We got to get over there too, you know? Can't let them get in the market without us. Yes. Uh, yes. Because colonialism is really just a huge pissing contest. Um, if all of these countries could have just picked one man to be in charge and then had all of those men line up, measure their dicks against each other, and then after that, I could shoot them all in the face, we'd be in a much better place. <laughs> I stand by that comment. Don't edit that out. I also stand by that comment. Thank you. Um, so now let's talk about the single greatest achievement of a British woman to be both a fancy <laughs> savior lady and also, quite frankly, hilarious. <laughs> Hannah Glass's The Art of Cookery, where Love she it. attempts to teach people how to make a curry in the India way. So this mm-hmm. cookbook is referencing, this is the first early reference to it in 1758, which is hilarious. Also, it consists of ginger, pepper, and turmeric. That's it. I mean, sure. I don't hold with her nonsense. <laughs> um. Anyways, this was only the start of England's love affair with curry, and in 
I'm really fast forwarding here. In 2001, British Foreign Secretary Robin Cook gave a speech in which he hailed chicken tikka masala as a national dish. Symbol of modern multicultural Britain. Yup. Would you like to hear the dedication for Hannah Glasses' The Art of Cookery at the beginning? Absolutely, yes. In today's episode of White Women, at it again. <laughs> yes. Honestly, I read an article that was just like, oh yes, more fancy Victorian ladies who really had too much fucking time on their hands. Oh, I believe I have attempted a branch of cookery which nobody has yet thought worth their while to write upon. But as I have both seen and found by experience that the generality of servants are greatly wanting in that point. Therefore, I have taken upon me to instruct them in the, the best manner I am capable. And I dare say, the every servant who can but read will be capable of making a tolerably good cook. And those who have the least notion of cookery cannot miss of being very good ones. I have not written in a high, polite style. I hope I shall be forgiven, for my intention is to instruct the lower sort, the lower sort, and therefore <laughs> must treat them in their own way. For example, when I bid them lard a fowl, if I should bid them lard with large lardons, they would not know what I meant. But when I say they must lard with little pieces of bacon, they know what I mean. So she's literally saying that her audience is like lower class people and then with that knowledge being like hey you lower class people who don't know what i'm talking about here's something i'd say that you wouldn't know about yep it's just like the snarliest dedication to a book ever it's just like you're stupid you're welcome like brought you some knowledge Sorry, i had to write in like low voice <laughs> um also just as an fyi the like copy that i was reading has all the s's really stylistically looking like f's which is so distracting <sighs> So the entire time I was like, you muffed? Not you muffed? <laughs> like, I was just very confused. So anyways, that's what I got about the history of curry. The long and short of it is, we don't really know much. It's basically just like the British came, things are crazy, and here we are. You brought up a lot of points that I'm actually going to kind of touch on, like specifically like authenticity and kind of this idea of like what curry even is and who it is for and kind of all of that which is super interesting. And I mean, we didn't even get into because it's like curry is not just like a yes. an Indian thing. It's 100%. It's like, again, like I said in that definition, it's just like some spices with some rice and maybe some meat. Maybe it's got like lots of sauce and maybe it doesn't. Yeah. And like I focused on India because that's the easiest place to trace it to. And that's where we think of curry technically. But there's curry from everywhere else that's like fitting within that definition. People doing it all over the damn place. Yes. Well, I think I'm also kind of focusing on India because it's a place that we haven't really touched on mm -hmm. with this podcast yet. So that's kind of interesting. Okay. So let's just like jump right into England because why not? I have some thoughts on why not. But anyways, okay, continue. Well, yes. But it's just like, I don't know. Again, I read English. Anyway, so we're just going to jump right into England. So as you were kind of saying, curry had become pretty much like completely naturalized to always mm -hmm. in the spare quotes as an English food by the mid 19th century. So by that time, it's like, everyone kind of knows what it is. There've been cookbooks written about it. Servants are just making it. <laughs> and I think kind of the theme to remember through all of this is that as like we've talked about with fish sauce and I mean, kind of all foods, when it comes to imperialism, food is often a stand-in for the whole culture or country. Yeah. 
that it is originally from. And so we see the sort of domestication of curry as a symbol for the, you know, again, quote, quote, domestication or anglicization of India. Mm -hmm. But also maybe not. (laughs) I mean, it's so convoluted. Everything is just like very confusing. Yeah, like it was interesting. So I think I read like a lot of articles, like the main one that I was reading about England, like curry in England, was I believe written by an English woman, which I didn't fully check, but her name sounded English. But then another like the article that I read by the writer from Mauritian, from Mauritius, that is how you say that word. Um, he was kind of contradicting. He's like, yeah, like, you know, whatever. But anyway. So the phrase and act of going for a curry or out for a curry has become a mainstay of British social and cultural life since about the 60s. So that's kind of our curry, mate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, but actually the way that you said that is kind of exactly how it's taken. Like it it is kind of that like lower working class. Okay. Again, the men that I encountered in that curry shop in London just no teeth, very confusing. Yes, okay. So as of 2016-ish was kind of the best numbers I found. Britain has about 12,000 restaurants run by uh, Indian or South Asian immigrants with annual revenues estimated at over 4.2 billion pounds. I saw that stat too and I was like, holy heck, a lot of curry money, yo. It's a huge industry for like not a very big country. It's also, I think, worth pointing out there too that that's exclusively the curry shops you're speaking of. Is that correct? Not the like whole, like the enormous market of like take home, like frozen microwave curry. Yes, this is just like restaurants. It's not like the frozen foods are like pre-made, which I'm going to talk about Pataks a little bit. Um, So yeah, and the thing is most of the customers, or maybe not most, but like a lot of the customers at these restaurants are white. Mm-hmm. So diving into... British colonial history in general and in India in particular is obviously far beyond the scope of our podcast. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, India and Pakistan gained independence in 1947 as part of the post World War II mass decolonization project that was actually like total bullshit because <coughs> started its own imperial stuff. But again, we don't have time for that. So it's so nice that we could all feel good about ourselves for like a whole year after everybody had been like murdered. Super fun. So many problems with just being like, yeah, you want your own country? Cool. Here it is. Never mind that there are other people who live here and you get a country, you get a country, you get a country. Oh, we just put your country in a place where you hate everyone and you have historical like conflict. Cool. Doesn't matter. Super chill. So anyway, many people from the former colonies immigrated to England in the post-war period and were not surprisingly met with like a lot of fucked up racist behavior because shockingly, people are not as easy to assimilate and possess as food. Ah, I've said a whole (laughs) mouthful there. Yes. There's like a Britain and Canada, definitely Canada, prides itself on multiculturalism as a kind of immigration ethos, but specifically because this one article I read was talking about England. Uh, So beginning in the 60s, the notion of assimilation was replaced because obviously it didn't work with one of integration, which was meant to be less about a flattening of culture and more focused on diversity and kind of what they called like a quote, mutual tolerance. 
Is that, I know in history and social studies, like back in the day, they compared mm-hmm. Canada and America's immigration policies and described it as like America is a melting pot, whereas, or that melting pot, I actually don't. Melting, yeah. Melt. Thank you. I'm like, I don't know, maybe somebody, okay, anyways, a melting pot versus a mosaic. Is that kind of what we're attempting to like bill it as in the UK as well? I think so. So this was kind of like all of their different steps. So integration, I think they're, they were like, oh, like we can't just automatically like assume that everyone's going to come here and immediately be British. So then they had this idea of like integration, which I guess was, it's kind of like that in-between point, but it is definitely more like, I think the term mutual tolerance is really key. Because it's, like, not positive. <laughs> no, it's very not. It sounds quite shitty. You'll live together and you'll like it. <laughs> or you won't, but you will shut the fuck up about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that lasted about 10 years. And then by the 70s, it had morphed once again into what was called, quote, benevolent multiculturalism. May I ask in terms of, like, when you say it morphed into this, is, like, this is announcements about... Like, the policy, is this what we see in the kind of, like, ads and, like, the propaganda surrounding immigration? Like, how are um, we seeing these different opinions take form? Yeah, so it's, like, government programs. I think this benevolent multiculturalism was definitely one that was, like, added and was, like, an obvious program. So it was really prevalent in, like, the education system. Oh, so okay. they made an effort. Yeah, so they thought that racism and white ignorance could basically be cured by just teaching kids about ethnic minorities. And they did it, and it's all great now. <laughs> yeah. God no. bless Britain. So sadly, they were kind of just ended up learning like stereotypes because obviously the people <laughs> developing these curriculums were definitely white and didn't consult with like actual people from minority groups. And it, and then you kind of get into this like, and I even remember this from like, again, my Canadian education where it's like, this is what like, I don't know, like a person from India looks like, and it's very much like the saris and like very traditional Mm. dress, which sure, there are people that dress like that, but it's also like, I don't know, Sandeep sitting next to me just wearing jeans. Like, yeah. Or you learn like, and then you learn about like Ukrainian culture and it's like the head, it's, it's just very much like you're kind of trying to distill it down into like, it becomes cliched. It's so interesting too, because when you think about it, like, what is the solution? Like, I don't know. And like, obviously having consultation with minorities is a hundred percent part of it. But like, if I were to try and redesign a curriculum, I was thinking about this. I was like, I literally was thinking about this as I was doing Mm -hmm. my research. I'm just like, how does anyone teach history? Like, I feel so conflicted just running my mouth about one dish and making sure (laughs) that I'm like a nuanced approach to it, which like, I'm sure I'm not really. But then to, like, be sculpting the minds of young children and have, like, literally no fucking nuance. Pardon my language again. I wasn't working on it. Um, it's just so troubling. Like, I don't know. I don't know the approach to it. Well, I mean, nobody does. And that's the thing. Like, we're still working on it. Like, that, that was a program in the UK in, like, the 70s. So... Like, and by the 90s, it was totally cliched. But I think even at that time, there were like anti-racist groups that were definitely pointing out the flaws. And I think the specific flaws with that program and with like a lot of the kind of like teaching stereotypes style of multiculturalism is that it doesn't actually confront 
racial prejudice in like the real time. Like it's, it's just being like, yes, like this is so-and-so and and this is like what they look like. And this is what people from this country look like. And everyone is happy and nice. It's like, no, we have to talk about the fact that we had a colonial history. And like the reason that all of these people from India and Bangladesh and Pakistan are now living in London is because we invaded their country and ruled them for years. Like you have to kind of talk about that. The main part is like acknowledging a history of like violence and oppression is necessary in order to have a nuanced conversation there. Yeah, and be like, this is not cool because people are just people and like calm down. (laughs) I think (laughs) we should be teaching children and also humans and adults of all kinds just like calm down. That's the long (laughs) and Everyone needs to calm down. The most calming phrase in the English language. (laughs) Indeed, you're welcome. I've sorted it out, guys. Me and Britain, we got you. So this idea of benevolent multiculturalism, like, sure, it has, like, lots of problems that have been very much pointed out, but it just kind of, like, sat there because it's kind of, I mean, it could be worse. And one of the ways in which it's not great, though, is, and I think this is sort of true for a lot of globalized countries and cities, is that multiculturalism has become more of a white consumptive practice rather than an Mm -hmm. actual anti-racist policy. And like we talked about this with Fair Sauce and with a couple like other episodes where it's that idea of like consuming other cultures as a way of showing your belief in multiculturalism. It's not like you have, you know, six immigrant friends or 20. It's, oh yeah, like I love Indian food and I eat Chinese every Thursday. It's like, I can't even think of things. And it's like, oh, I go to Chinatown and I get fucking groceries there. Like, it's not, that's not Yeah, it's, I'm happy to, ch- I shop at a Chinese grocery store. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, the phrase consuming culture. So, so, so relevant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Since obviously this consumptive practice has so much to do with food specifically. And again, as we've talked about in fish sauce, ethnic restaurants are complex sites that solidify both cuisine and then by extension an ethnicity in the white consumer's consciousness. So like, I guess another way to say that would be a lot of white people think that they know about a specific culture just by going to like one restaurant. It's yeah, it's a stand in for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, the food standing in for a person mm-hmm. that's especially difficult, I think is the best word with curry because it, curry is so broad as we've talked about like it's not only is it just like India which is a very broad place with so many different styles and peoples and languages and religions but it's also yeah Pakistani Bangladeshi Mauritian Sri Lankan like it's huge I don't know okay so going back to curry houses opening up in England in like the 60s I don't know if I want to get into the really upsetting and problematic and still pervasive issue of like white people being offended by the smell of curry. I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, the phrase like curry in a hurry is that like part of that kind of like idea. And I was just thinking like how awful and sad and I'm, we should obviously discuss it, but I'm feeling Mm -hmm. also very sad and tender so quickly. (laughs) I mean, it's basically just people like immigrants moved into especially working class or like Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, like those smaller towns in England and cooked the food of their homes because why the heck would you not? And a lot of like white neighbors would say things like, oh yeah, like they're lovely people, but ooh, that smell kind of like, and that's a pretty like polite way of saying it. And basically it's just a symbolic stand-in for the resentment around 
immigration and supposed encroachment on formerly white communities. Is this like how I have a problem with men who smell like strong cologne and act body spray? And that's really just a stand in for my beef with the patriarchy. Yes, but also that is offensive and rude. You should not be able to smell your cologne. No, I'd way rather spices than their cologne. Definitely. Um, But anyway, so there were some people who did like the smell and the taste. So the early 60s, most white patrons at the early curry houses were either white Brits who used to live in India or young people, which is cool. Ah, yes, it is very cool. The loaded cool. (laughs) The inflection. So yeah, so it played a lot of that played into the anti-establishment youth culture of the 60s. Mm. They appreciated the cheap prices and a break from bland traditional English fare. Obviously. Because again, Britain where British literally murdered people for the spices. Um and then also, you know, it's something that maybe your parents actively disapproved of and it became adventurous. Ugh. People trying to, Perry and I are talking about this today, people trying to piss their parents off by doing the things that their parents wouldn't like. I don't have it in me, and I don't understand it, and I won't hold with it. Well, because you have a good relationship with your parents. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, continue. (laughs) Um, So yes, it was very adventurous. There became a game of like trying to eat the hottest curry, which is just like... uh, And that ties into the fact that mostly the youth going to these curry houses were working class or lower middle class young men. So it's like totally like feats of masculinity to see who could handle the hottest curry. Oh my God. And then, of course, also with that, you get the dark side, which is that a lot of times they would be rude, racist, or sometimes overtly aggressive and violent with the staff, which is not great no but anyway the popularity increased through the late 60s and 70s and the restaurants that had initially opened to serve kind of like the fellow immigrants and then had these other like white clientele so they sort of started to transform to sort of cater to those tastes and a lot of that first started in terms of like where they were opening the restaurants. so a lot of curry restaurants opened up near universities because that's kind of where their main clientele was oh that's interesting yeah and then they also Modified the dishes, of course. But that had been going on forever, as we will get to. And also just like a casual point that like literally, as I was saying, like, okay, we have this new influx of this population and we have these people coming in, blah, blah, blah. Nothing is stable. Food is always changing. Let's all calm down about authenticity. Everything is always changing. So yeah, so the design as well as the food in British curry houses quickly became a standardized kind of distillation of stereotypes. They... They were what the white British public expected them to be. Like, it's like, yeah, okay, this is what you wanted. We're going to do that. But then, of course, that makes them become a cliche. And then there's some people who obviously are going to snobbishly accuse them of being inauthentic. And a lot of the restaurants are dismissed by those who claimed to know better as downplaying regional uniqueness and serving a, quote, generalized Indian food. Oh, you cannot win. (laughs) Yes, authenticity is such a dumb conversation about this, as we've been saying the whole time, because curry in general, and like especially in England, is like fundamentally a hybrid food. So good evidence of this is Britain's national dish, the chicken tikka masala, which the highly disputed origin of this. Did you read this? No. So apparently, according to like the the myth of chicken tikka masala. 
Oh, I think I did, but continue, sorry. Is that a Pakistani restaurateur in Glasgow added tomato sauce to just like this chicken curry that was deemed too dry by a white patron. And like, that's how you got chicken tikka masala. That is hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Yes. And just like the idea that like people would just make it at home with like canned tomato soup. Yes. Like horrifying. But also, I mean, get it, girl, whatever. Why not? Why not? So there's also, we get into like some uncomfortable, like classist arguments where, you know, those sort of, again, the people who presume to know better are saying that the cooks lack skill are untrained villagers. And this is not just coming from like white people. This is also coming from, oh man, there was this one lady who's like, she's a, like a Bollywood actress, or I guess they didn't have Bollywood then, but she's like an Indian actress who then did a bunch of like cooking shows. I should look it up. Miru Jaffrey. And she was critiquing the restaurateurs in these like British curry houses. Yeah. So she was definitely one of the proponents of being like, this is not authentic. Like you should cook real Indian food, which of course is like, she's doing a cooking show. So that's kind of, that's yeah. why. But That's really interesting. And like a part of me always sort of thinks to myself, like maybe it's not that it's inauthentic. Maybe it's just like these people aren't the greatest cooks. Maybe they're just making, and like this is so many places. Like I feel like you go, anywhere really and you eat any kind of food and you're just like this maybe isn't the best but it's just like what someone's trying like if it's not a professional chef and it's a smaller location like this is just what somebody knows how to cook well the reason that this is such a complicated kind of weird argument for these detractors to make is that then like you also get in well okay there's a couple things one Mm -hmm. a lot of them yeah sure they are just like villagers or like sea men I don't even know like I think I saw some things that they were like sailors or something like the people that are coming over they're they're immigrants like they're coming over to get like create a new life for themselves it seemed like a good thing to do like let's yeah so it's like yeah you open a restaurant you know that it's like an industry that's already there or you want to start it because it's what you know and then the thing that's also so messed up is that maybe not necessarily at this time but certainly later it's like the idea of like making Indian food is so much traced to your history and to like, oh yeah, like it's just like my mom used to make and just like they'd make back in the small village. Mm-hmm. Why are we critiquing these people for being villagers when what you're searching for is supposedly like an authentic traditional village curry? This is so, okay, this is so dumb to bring this up, but there's this one episode of King of the Hill, which I don't know <laughs> why I've ever watched, but anyways, where the mom, I think her name is Peggy, is like she's decided she's going to become an artist and she's like so proud of herself for getting invited to this like quite fancy hoity-toity art event and then the guy who invited her there is like yeah this simpleton who never had any official art training look what she can do like almost like she's a dog with a paintbrush in her mouth and that's what it is right is like there's this sort of like like glamour to being like homespun and like really salt of the earth but you need something to validate that much in the same way that like this like fancy artist validated this woman in this one episode of a shitty cartoon yes and then the other thing that's also Mm. kind of the reason that i think or like kind of where all of this critique is actually coming from is even more messed up because it's like gendered is it no no it's islamophobic ah well yes because a lot of yeah so I mean, a lot of the curry dishes are, they're from like Northern India, Mm -hmm. which is like right by 
the divide of Pakistan kind of like mm-hmm. area and like and it's a lot of them are Bangladeshi so it's like yeah so the same thing as in like Vancouver or a lot of places where sushi restaurants are run by Korean immigrants a lot of the Indian restaurants in England are staffed and operated by Bangladeshis and Pakistanis which means that a lot of Britain's Indian restaurants are owned and operated by Muslims and they're often targets of racial and Islamophobic attacks because many white Britons view uh, Muslim people as, quote, marginal, intolerant, regressive, and dangerous. Oh. Yeah, well, and it's like, so curry, as we've been talking about this whole time, as we are continually talking about, is a dish that is adaptive and has had all these different influences and is able to, I mean, kind of assimilate, but also maintain its own character when mm. it's introduced to these new regions and different flavors and ingredients but as much as you know the white consumer would like to have the food stand in for the person they're not giving these muslim like cooks or even just immigrants in general that same i don't know like benefit of a doubt or they're not even they're not allowing them to have that same kind of hybrid nature and cultural flexibility because they're assuming well oh this is how it is in this country in this vague weird kind of conservative oh i'm riled up <laughs> yep, yep. oh feel it feel it feel it just like there's we can accept nuance in this dish but we can't accept it in the people making it is that what you're like getting at yeah totally oh it's also like super classist because again because all of it's classist because unfortunately i mean okay <laughs> i'm not gonna do that <laughs> India is a classist country. Britain is a classist country. (laughs) Yeah, what? Who would have thought? Anyways. But, um, yeah, but even in, like, India, Sikhs and Hindus have much more upward mobility Mm -hmm. than the Muslims in both India and actually even in, I don't know, the States, Canada, Britain. Yep. Okay, so let's go back to just curry houses. (sighs) You literally are dabbing the sweat off of your eyebrows from the stress of this all, and I'm obsessed with it. Also because I'm just in my bathroom and it's hot. Oh, yeah. So, 80s and 90s. Curry houses are huge, in spite of everyone who's like, me, 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 not authentic, just a cliche. And we start seeing curry capitals popping up over the English countryside, as, like, a lot of these cities that had early on been sites of highly racialized tension, such as Birmingham and Bradford, they start marketing the fact that they have so many Indian restaurants. It's like a point of tourism. That's trash. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky. So yeah. So visitors who are going to these like cities are invited to embark on a curry trail or streets known as curry miles, where it's just like streets full of curry restaurants. (laughs) It's very interesting because a lot of these same cities suffered severely economically as a result of deindustrialization in like the 80s and 90s. Hmm. So they're really co-opting multiculturalism in an attempt to de-emphasize ethnic conflict and poverty. Is that not the damn truth though for like every single place? You're like, we can't possibly have a problem here. Like, look at this. We have two Thai restaurants in town. Are you saying? Culture. Yeah. Culture. Please stop by the gift shop of our, you know, Tour du Monde. Tour du Monde. Yeah, you're going through the world. We yes. have a McDonald's where the French dine. And then you have the currywurst. Also, I can't believe we haven't talked about that first. 
Oh, I was going to look up currywurst and like. Currywurst is delicious for the record. Oof. So also in the 80s. Hmm. Just the 80s. What so time. happening? Oof. Uh, we're also seeing an, the advent of kind of more like upscale Indian restaurants, which were definitely opened in direct opposition to the cheap curry house. I was actually going to ask, do you know off the top of your head if there's like um, Michelin starred restaurants in India, like, or if, if kind of that traditional like curry house, because I know like in like, especially Japan, like that street food or like, you know, or just like in Asia in general, there are quite a few places that are like street foods, but they are still given like quite high cultural regard from like the established critical mass uh i feel like i saw mention of this well it definitely wouldn't be the curry houses in england because those are like just like holes in the wall and like but not even just not establishment yes i don't even know about like i didn't even look at what like restaurants are like in india really (laughs) oh actually i read like one thing and it's kind of like they're like oh yeah like we make other stuff because like we're sick of our own food (laughs) i don't know that's actually um, so But in England, probably if you were going to like find a Michelin star Indian restaurant, it would be one of these. It's like the decor was usually done up in like Raraj colonial style, reflecting the <laughs> imperial nostalgia <laughs> of the 80s. Cause... Also, I just looked it up and there is modern, like there's Indian restaurants in India that are given like high regard. Yeah, of course. I'm an ass traveler. So that's really legit. Of course, sure. So a lot of the owners of these like kind of fancier Indian places in England were middle class immigrants with hotel backgrounds. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Which is like, and I imagine a lot of the hotels in the big cities in India have colonial backgrounds. So, mm. so they all, a lot of them emphasize regional dishes from Goa or Kerala. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm saying that right. So Goa was the place where the Portuguese training port was, just as like a and both of those places are huge tourist destinations, whereas, like, Kashmir probably isn't. Like, mm-hmm. like, so you're more likely to go to the sort of, like, coastal, like, southern places. Like, you're just more familiar with that kind of cuisine. Yes. And it's definitely kind of trying to emphasize this, like, tourist, you know, exotic consumer. Yeah. But all the while, they're insisting on kind of genuine Indianness, which is, you know, a thing. Um, A lot of them also put themselves in direct opposition to curry houses um, by omitting the term curry from their menus completely. Really? Oh, that's interesting. And I I think I would expect that, actually. Yeah, so I think it's a lot of it's more focusing on, like, using, like, they will just say, like, tikka masala or, like, have, like, the name. They won't say, like, curries or these. It's like, I don't know. Okay, so this book that I read, which was excellent, highly recommend... The writing is so good, just like funny and like personal kind of stories, but also like super informative. And it is, uh, I think I want to say Nabin Ruthnam, um, and it is called Curry, Eating, Reading, and Race. Love. And so this excellent quote he has is, Curry's just as fake and as real as a great novel, as a sense of identity. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it like really signs, like sums up the fact that like curry is indefinable in so many ways and just like very personal but also just like that so is literally everything our sense of self that's oh i'm obsessed with that quote and i think that like a lot of the idea of how like personal curry is is totally shown in the fact that like precision measurement is like totally antithetical to curry yes mm-hmm. which is what makes like recipes and like that <laughs> cookery book 
And just like any kind of like curry recipe that you read, just like so ironic and hilarious. Because this other, here's another quote. I can't remember where this one's from. <laughs> uh, is imprecision is one of the few true signifiers of authenticity for curry. Oh, that's so good too. So like as we've been talking about the whole time, curry has always been a product of trade and colonialism. Like heat, spiciness mm. is the perfect example. Like you're talking about everyone, like Indian people, Westerners alike view spiciness as a given with Indian food to the point where like picking your spice level is a cliche, which yeah. Yes. back to the discussion with Thai food where it's like you want to prove that you can handle more than white person spice. <laughs> also just like love that the idea of going into a curry shop in like England and saying like, oh, I want to try really spicy food and like prove your masculinity. Like that's so <laughs> spot on from what I can imagine. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. But curry, I mean, but chilies, chilies are from the Caribbean. Get it together, y'all. Yep, 15th century Portuguese. Oh, Hilarious. I love it. But I feel like the spice really does add to it. And I think that that's such a big portion of it. Like, it's this idea of a living cuisine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and curry has been sustained by not by pandering to foreign cultures, but by absorbing them, which is... And that's literally the whole point of us discussing any sort of food ever, is it examining these things because they're these living entities. Yeah, well, I think and another like really interesting point with that is that like the inauthentic restaurant curries like of old have become authentic for mm-hmm. many second generation uh, Indian immigrants. Because that's yeah. what they grew up with. And, like, a lot of them, like, prefer a restaurant curry to, like, I don't know, not even, like, their moms, but it's... Yeah. No, I read that, like, in a quote in mm-hmm. some article that I was reading that it was just like, yeah, they'd way rather go out for a curry than have it at home with their mom. Yeah. Okay, but speaking of these second-generation immigrants, uh, uh, Ruthnam writes uh, just about, like, food writing for uh, South Asian immigrants or, like, any sort of ethnic scare quotes I don't that word's tough but food writers uh is characterized so often it's characterized by a journey of self-discovery and tracing your culinary roots through aromas and tastes oh and I love that style of writing too sure it's good it's evocative and it's personal which I think is what so much food writing is and should be when it's like good but it is totally like that self-exoticizing Mm-hmm. So a lot of what that happens is with the the mother figure, Ugh. as we talked about earlier, it's so much baggage. And that's like what, like kind of, I we wanted to get at it a little earlier. It's like, there is so much gendering, I feel like too, mm-hmm. especially Indian food. Like all, all food has like a gendered element to it, of course, because we have these prescribed roles for women, blah, 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 blah. But like the idea of like your mom, cooking you your authentic Indian food is such a strong visual it is well and I think it's that idea of yeah it's like learning to cook from your mom and she's like a lot of the authors that are writing about like you know tracing and trying to recreate their mother's like curry or their whatever like alu gobi or whatever and it's this idea of she kind of like holding this like unknowable like mystery and uh, like because there's no precise measurements it's like oh you know like you just put this and like writing this like cryptic recipe and it becomes again like a metaphor for a connection to like a lost homeland oh 
Which is like, but... But it isn't lost because it's just still there and you're just doing it differently. But like, yeah. a tragic idea still that like, we're aching to connect with this like place that doesn't exist. Well, and then, and I was going to get to this later, but I'm just going to say it right now, which is this like sort of study of Indian diaspora in Vancouver. Mm. And the writer talks about how like lots of like multiculturalism studies look at other cultures as foreign and static Mm. and that like, so yeah. and, And that a lot of, you know, immigrants fall into the same trap where they have this nostalgia for like a remembered homeland without considering the fact that it's like, yeah, like you've lived here in all this time your homeland has also progressed. Like it's not exactly the same as when you immigrated when you were five or 20 or 42. Like India is a multicultural country in its own right now. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole thing. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I think the gist of what you're getting at is just like, nothing is ever going to stay the same. Life's a mess. Just let's eat. Food is living and so are we. Yep. Preach. Yeah, I mean, so the Indian diaspora in Vancouver, I I found a lot of, like, articles about it, but it was very, like, ethnographic, and some of them were kind of, like, older, like, 2004, mm. which wasn't really yeah. what I wanted, but I think it's very interesting, because there's, like, a huge Sikh community in BC, mm-hmm. most of whom uh, are originally from Punjab, which is a state in India, and, like, this Sikh community is now the largest non-Christian group in greater, greater Vancouver. Really? Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's huge. And like in, originally it was in like South Main Street and there's like the whole like Punjab market, but a lot of those places are closed now, which is kind of sad and interesting. It's so interesting. What, okay. Cause I remember being like driving with my mom because my like mom is German Mennonite and that Mm -hmm. there was like a huge community in like the East Van area for like the German Mennonites there and then she says she remembers like being a kid and like all of these like uh like Sikh immigrants coming in and like there's just enormous Indian population popping up and she's like oh yeah and then it like slowly kind of started changing to that and then I guess like again the lack of consistency and how things are never going to be like just set in stone Uh, and now it's something else right yeah well now the it's all in like Surrey. Yeah. Which is super cool. And there's so many incredible like Indian restaurants in Surrey and like amazing like shops and like this whole huge community. It's super cool. Like, Have you been to India? You haven't. Mm, I, oh, mm, yes. I did go to India. Oh, right. Yes. We on a, like, on a white savior trip in high school. Built a super school, fun. which was just like shittily digging a hole for like two days it was very cool it was incredible but it's just like again it's something that we both have to grapple with as both like you know like go getter like let's you know join all the clubs and save all the people and do all the whatever it's like it's something that like i'm grappling with myself of like my history of like thinking that i had any business doing any of that <laughs> yeah yep also, I feel like we didn't mention this, and it's not the right place to set it in, but I'm just going to sneak that bad boy in there, is that cooking with butter and oils is so much more common in the northern part of um, mm. India, which is super cool. And also, hashtag that podcast that I, you told me to listen to about the dairy, uh, this podcast with Kuli, uh, mm-hmm. where they're like half of the like country of India is very lactose intolerant, and the other half isn't, and it's like the part that isn't has all the butter and things. Yeah, totally. Well, and there was a... I was 
it's kind of threaded again through Rothnub's like book. There's like the talking about uh, korma like as a dish, and it was like kind of like yeah, like it was had like a lot of like Persian influences, and then the like Mughal emperor empire was kind of ruling. So, but then like the Lucknow like kingdom was just like no like this is like our thing and then they added yogurt and did all these like things because they were super into cream up there and who isn't into cream truly if you're not into cream there's something wrong so i was doing (laughs) yeah that's the hill we want to die on we don't discriminate (laughs) just people who don't like cream we could talk briefly about pataks which is the brand of like jarred and like pre-made Indian sweets and snacks. Please do. It was started by L.G. Patak with an H in it in 1957 after he moved to England with only five pounds in his pocket, according to the website. (laughs) And then this is also one of those ones where it's like his wife was clearly doing like all of the work, but it's like him is like, I guess he's doing like the business stuff and she's just like making things. Um, <laughs> Whatever. so the business took off and then his son took over and then his wife also seems to now be doing all of the work <laughs> um, and they sell pre-made sauces, pickles, chutneys, spice blends, etc which mm. is like cool it's like a very, you can get it everywhere it's I love like, that fine just anytime like again and I think that this is like to speaking to the authenticity is like we do have such like this like we have a problem with it in our heads even though they're really we've discussed ad nauseum that it's not really a thing but like i think when we do want to talk about the authenticity that's probably part of it like we want to acknowledge is that this is like made by like not necessarily made by an indian person but made with somebody who has like a passion for it and like it's a family as opposed to just a large corporation if that makes sense definitely i mean it is now a large corporation okay how about this part on the british version of their website there's a sub uh heading titled just jamie oliver Oh, I was wondering if we were going to talk about Jamie Oliver because he's so about this. Okay, continue. And it's just like a bunch of recipes. And it's him like arm around, I guess, like the, like Mina. Mina or Minu. Damn it. I don't write things down when I should. Anyway, like the, <laughs> the like wife who is now like. Of course. That's and it's so just like funny. Jamie. Because he literally has a huge section. I have a few Jamie Oliver cookbooks and he has this huge bit in one of them being like, don't just buy a curry from like a a jar. Make it yourself. (laughs) But like, lol. Now he's like hawking jarred curries. Ridiculous. And also like, again, like white man chef. Want to talk about curry powder and like health? Yes. And by curry, I mean... Like, just turmeric. I'm so glad you're going to get into it, because I was like, I don't have the wherewithal to look into all of this, but, like, every bitch, and they're like, enjoy the ancient magic of turmeric. Yeah. Basically, it's just, like, a topic of much debate, with some claiming that it has healing powers, like, in, especially in regards to, like, calming inflammation, and a lot of other people remaining skeptical. (laughs) The best conversation was with... Blake's friend Gio, who is a doctor and will hate to know that he is mentioned on this podcast. Uh-huh. Um, is he not a fan of our delightful podcast? Come on now, Gio. Um, basically, because Blake was taking a bunch of like turmeric pills because he read one article that was like turmeric's oh. a thing. <laughs> oh. And Gio's like, mm, no. Because a lot of them were like, yeah, like, look at all these people in India. They don't have cancer. And it's like, 
they're just not getting checked for cancer or they're dying <laughs> before they get cancer. Ah, <laughs> uh, great. Love the research there. But anyway, there actually has been some recent-ish uh, research. One article I read was from 2007, but then there were like some other ones that, anyway. Uh, so it shows that curcumin, is that how you say it? Curcumin? C-U-R-C-U-M-I-N, which is the active component in turmeric. Uh, has been shown to be an antioxidant that can have uh, anti-inflammatory properties. A number of studies done between the late 80s and early 2000s established curcumin's ability to lower brain plaques in mouse models. Uh, (laughs) Yes, the whole like testing things for people on mice is dumb. But um, the plaques, so those plaques are thought to be a cause of Alzheimer's. Oh, that's cool. So apparently it works in mice. Do a bunch of sort of. Yeah, and there also have been studies that in India, they seem to have a lower rate of Alzheimer's, but that could be attributed to like genetic differences or again, the fact that there is generally a shorter life expectancy in India and the surrounding countries. So it's like you're just... You're dying before your brain craps Dying before your brain falls apart. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's the breaks. Um, but yeah, so the fact that uh, curcumin and turmeric are all so widely available is good if you believe that it will prevent you from getting like dementia. But there's also a dark side, which is that uh, in the U.S., dietary supplements containing plant extracts are not subject to FDA approval. Of course, they're which not. <laughs> means that they it is up to the company to ensure that they are safe. And because dietary supplements are considered foods, not drugs, they do not have to demonstrate proof of their claims at effectiveness. Love it. Okay, so I listened to this other podcast. It's called Sawbones. It's really great. It's about like just medical stuff. And uh, the one, it's like a husband and wife and they talk about it and the wife's a doctor. And she recently did an episode on oleander, which is what Trump is peddling as a cure for COVID, which Mm. is horrifying because it's also like a plant that grows like you can potentially have it in your backyard and if you eat it it can kill you yeah i was like isn't that like super poisonous yes it is thank you so much for knowing that (laughs) um and basically that same thing came up in that episode where she was just like yeah because if you market it as like a vitamin but like not a pill you don't have to do shit to prove it and also you could just like throw it anywhere yeah so the problem is that, like, a lot of this stuff ends up getting, like, marketed to, like, elderly people. Because, again, like, Alzheimer's and a lot of the uh, popularization of these, like, kind of weird dietary supplements, it's, just, like, just through word of mouth. Are they only people talking to each other anymore? Truly. <laughs> a 2002 survey of VA patients found that 86% learned about supplements from friends, relatives, books, and magazines. As opposed to, like, 29%. That found out through their doctor, which is real rough. Alarming. Yeah. So, yeah, like a lot of the products have either very, very early or little research or research that has been twisted to just like bump up sales, which is like cough, cough, turmeric, cough. (coughs) And what's worse is that for many of these products, the dose needed in order to like actually have an effect. So it's like, yeah, like this has an effect on you know, like reducing like pain or whatever. But a lot of the time in order to have any of those like pain or inflammation reducing effects, you have to take 
the substance at such a high level that it can often cause problems in other areas. Like in a lot of cases, it's like blood thinning. So it like causes, <laughs> like, it's like really bad. <laughs> so yes, please tell your doctor about what you're taking. And I'm like, just like, don't, don't put weird stuff in your body, hoping for the best. I think the most like common, like, or the most sensible thing you can do is just like, if it seems too good to be true, it is. Like if there's ever something entitled the wonder pill or the wonder cure, like wonder why that's a cure. Truly. I don't know. Do you want to talk about turmeric lattes? I guess. I mainly just want to tell you that I think they're stupid. Yeah, they are stupid. And yucky. They're yucky. Turmeric isn't... I don't like the taste. I think it has a time and a place, but I don't think that time or place is ever going to be a latte. I once had, like, a very, like, Burning Man type dude <laughs> tell me that, like, the best cure for a hangover is to have, like, hot milk with turmeric and black pepper. I never tried it. Maybe it does work. I feel like I don't trust any white man that goes to Burning Man. That's like all of Burning Man. Exactly. (laughs) I also don't trust any hangover cure that isn't just sleeping, taking like hamster sips of water, and then eating McDonald's. Yes. Or just drinking water the night before. Like a... Oh, taking an antacid if you're going to drink wine. There you go. Hot take for the day. Ooh, yes. We never remember to do that. Never remember to do it. But it's so helpful. I don't even have antacids ever. I have some in my purse because I prepare for these things and don't take them like a fool. So, yeah, curry. Um, I don't know. Shall I finish up with this nice quote from uh, Rothman? Thank you. Curry's reassuring power isn't a resurrection of a stable past, but a reminder that the past and our former countries are as fractious and adaptable as the present. Oh, that is really nice. Yeah, it's just nice. Get that book. Yeah, Curry, book. eating, reading, and race. Oh, eventually we're actually going to start posting our sources in a place where you guys can actually find them. Oh, yes. Sources. We're trying to do it. It's just like things are hard. Um, But it will be Instagram. Our Instagram is Pantry Staples Pod. Follow us there. Check us out. Occasionally, we will share fun recipes and also make you do a quiz where you can yeah. potentially win a picture of Marika doing something. Or perhaps Emily at one point. Oh, Lord, no. <laughs> That's not, I'm the behind-the-scenes face here, lady. Highly untrue. <laughs> um, I don't know. Anything else? <laughs> Any, like, last business or follows? No, just if anyone has a good curry, like, let us know. As I'm new to Toronto, I do not have, well, not new. Like, I, sh- I when am I going to have to stop saying that? I mean, COVID really fucked my time lining up. But, like, I'm going to continue to say that probably for another two years. Um, <laughs> but if anyone has a favorite curry spot, let a girl know. Yeah. I'm going to, like, literally go order one right now. I 100% am, too. Amazing. Okay, we will send th- those pics. will be on our Instagram, Pantry Stables Pod. Um, thanks, peeps. Okay, we love you, bye. We love you, bye.